October 16, 1946. Under a waning gibbous moon at 1 a.m., ten of the highest-ranking Nazi officials were led towards the gallows and the Nuremberg Palace of Justice. Guilty men who orchestrated crimes against humanity, the Holocaust, and the waging of aggressive warfare across Europe. After two consecutive hours of hanging executions, many of which took several agonizing minutes because their ropes were prepared unusually long, the final condemned defendant of the Nuremberg trials climbed the thirteen stairs to meet his destiny. This man was Arthur Seiss Inquart, former Chancellor of Austria, Honorary SS Gruppenführer, and Reich Commander of the Axis-occupied Netherlands. He was responsible for deporting hundreds of thousands of Jews to the concentration camps, including the 14-year-old Anne Frank. A nervous and dejected Inquart stood on the wood-paneled floor as a black bag was put over his head and a noose placed around his neck. In his final remarks before the trapdoor opened, he solemnly uttered the following statement, quote, I hope this execution is the last tragedy of the Second World War. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials. Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities. Part 1. Smoke-filled rooms would first like to acknowledge a few things regarding the episodes you will be hearing on the Nuremberg Trials. Firstly, is that the attempt to outline the full emotional and historical scope of the Third Reich is a nearly impossible task. Exploring the total sum of depravity committed by the Nazi regime would be a multi-year endeavor in and of itself. How can one even begin to understand the bloody, brutal, and corpse-laden legacy of Adolf Hitler without having experienced it in some form? or at a bare minimum, studied it over the course of years to unravel the monstrous layers of barbarism and cold-blooded inhumanity. The episodes you will now hear are a summarization. It is not an attempt to minimize the totality of violence waged against the innocent peoples of Europe, or to diminish the sadistic acts of criminality perpetrated against humanity. This is the coverage of the Nuremberg Trials. We will be examining the legacy that their undertaking has left, and will be given, to the victims of the inevitable wars to come. Smoke-filled rooms of evil people will undoubtedly persist, but with any semblance of human decency, the Nuremberg trials will be recognized for what they were. The attempt to prosecute, in a humane and just fashion, the crimes committed by the accountable for the promise of a more peaceful future. The immediate aftermath of post-war Germany was one of nearly unimaginable destruction and social chaos. The Allied forces occupied the entirety of the former Third Reich, splitting the country in two, with the Americans holding the West and the USSR the East. 
German citizens were in a state of shock and apathy after having their entire world unraveled over the preceding six years. Many of their major cities lie in rubble, foreign armies were patrolling their streets, and their entire economic infrastructure was knocked back into the 19th century. Food was scarce, utilities were intermittent, and the future was uncertain. Would they be viciously ruled over by the Allied forces? Were they going to be subjugated like they had done to their neighbors? Who was to blame for this state of affairs? And what was to become of the men who had led them to this disastrous reality? Somewhere around 60 million people were killed during the course of World War II. This includes soldiers, civilians, Holocaust victims, and people who died from starvation, injury, or sickness due to the war. It was, and remains, the bloodiest and deadliest conflict in the history of mankind. Based on this reality, as well as the heavy casualties suffered by the victorious Allied powers, the question of what to do with Germany and its leaders was increasingly being asked aloud. As early as 1942, when it was becoming gradually apparent that an Allied victory was likely, the American, British, and Soviet leadership had ideas about what to do with the Nazi hierarchy after it fell. During the Tehran Conference of 1943, Premier Joseph Stalin asserted to Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt that Germany should suffer direct reprisals for their aggression and destruction. He suggested that 50,000 German officers be publicly executed. This was to be a preventative measure aimed at ensuring that the German army could not wage war again in the future. At this, Roosevelt quipped, quote, maybe 49,000 would be enough? Unquote. Outraged by the talk of wanton slaughter, which was becoming all too commonplace among the war planners of the European theater, Churchill angrily stood up from the table and said that neither he nor England would stand for the cold-blooded execution of soldiers who were fighting for their country. Another path was going to be needed, one that was punitive, just, and would serve as a timeless deterrent. And among the Allied leaders of 1944, it was only Churchill who lobbied for a civil solution to the Nazi question. Far from being a pacifist on the topic of punishments, after all he did encourage and order the carpet bombing of a nearly defenseless Dresden, Churchill did want something that would counteract the barbarity of the war and the injustice suffered by an entire continent. And if it were not for the death of President Roosevelt in 1945, just prior to the end of the war, the American and Soviet leadership may well have converged upon a blood-soaked agreement to crush the German political, military, and economic hierarchies with extreme violence. As a matter of reality, factions within the Soviet and American government wanted to permanently destroy the German means for industrial development, rendering it to a lowly agricultural society forevermore. But the newly sworn-in President Truman had other, more peaceful ideas in mind. Truman was of the opinion that the wealth and stability of Germany were vital to the success of post-war Europe. This meant that in order to expose and extinguish Nazism's totalitarian legacy, it needed to be permanently discredited, preferably in a just fashion and on an international scale. President Truman then tasked a team of American legal professionals to start negotiations with the Allied victors of World War II. The goal? to create a prosecutorial mechanism that would serve justice to the monsters of Germany.
Within the context of international law, the trials of World War I were largely seen as a low comedy for most of the world's legal communities throughout the 1920s. Although the Treaty of Versailles was imposed upon Germany by the victorious nations of the Great War, they left the legal proceedings against alleged war criminals to the German government itself. These accusations culminated in the Leipzig trials of 1921. In the lead-up to these proceedings, the Allied powers submitted documentation for the prosecution of over 900 German men. Of those 900, the list was eventually negotiated down to 45, and of those 45, only 12 were sent to trial. The harshest sentence meted out was two years in prison for German Major Crucius for the crime of executing a squadron of French POWs. In short, justice for war crimes was in the hands of self-interested parties who wanted to save face after having lost a major war, and who were additionally reluctant to punish patriotic and respected men that had served their nation. This meant that historically speaking, Germany would not prosecute its own. And a slap on the wrist would not suffice for the acts committed during World War II. The Allied victors wanted to ensure that precedent would be enshrined and that the verdicts would be as fair as possible to certify the court's legitimacy. Ever amassing military reports, documentary footage, and first-hand accounts of German conduct during the war was pointing towards something uniquely sinister and premeditated. Though the full scope of Nazi atrocities was still being understood in real time, it stood to reason that this was something that the world needed to hear, and more importantly, to punish. Maintaining the legitimacy of any potential legal proceedings was of critical importance. Many critics, at the mere mention of an internationally styled and binding legal process, were quick to label it ex post facto law. This is the idea that defining crimes after they were allegedly committed was extra-legal and ethically unacceptable. For it could be argued that the defendants might have behaved differently if the rules were expressly understood prior to the alleged crimes. This is especially revealing within an era of nationalism wherein military theory just embraced total war as a means to an end. Unrestricted violence does not leave much room for nuanced thinking. For as author Andrew Walker notes, quote, The Nazis may well have conspired to wage aggressive war, but when they did so, however immoral it may have been, it was not technically illegal. Unquote. The retort to such accusations was that murder, torture, enslavement, mass killings, theft, and rape were crimes common to the whole of humanity, and that warfare shouldn't give you ambiguous cover to exploit legal loopholes. It needed to be understood that this was going to be a genuinely fair trial, one that would prevent German authorities or legal critics from being able to charge that their innocence was never an option and that their guilt was extracted under duress. So between the months of August and October of 1945, the war already having been won on all fronts after the nuking of Japan, the Allies debated, tweaked, and formalized, often in agonizing detail the legal actions they would be pursuing against the Nazi regime. It was eventually agreed between the American, North Irish, Soviet, British, and French delegations that an international military tribunal would be chartered. Its power was to try, judge, and convict any Nazi officials who were directing organizations implicated in transnational criminal activity relating to World War II. 
This was drafted as the London Agreement and would later be formally dubbed as the Nuremberg Charter. After endlessly agonizing weeks of legal sessions, the Allies finally converged upon their model. They established the organization, mission, and conduct of a multinational tribunal and revealed the charter that would eventually govern the proceedings. Most importantly regarding this charter was Article 6. This section laid out exactly what the accused were to be charged with and what each charge consisted of. The charges were to be laid as follows. Charge 1. Crimes Against Peace This was understood to be the planning, preparation, initiation, or waging of a war of aggression, or a war in violation of international treaties, agreements, or assurances, or the participation in a common plan or conspiracy for the accomplishment of any of the foregoing. Charge 2. War Crimes these were presented as violations of the laws or customs of war, including, but not limited to, murder, ill-treatment, or deportation to slave labor. This also included the murder or ill-treatment of prisoners of war or persons on the seas, killing of hostages, plunder of public or private property, wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages, and the devastation not justified by military necessity. Charge 3 crimes against humanity. These were defined as murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population before or during the war. This included persecutions on political, racial, or religious grounds in execution of or in connection with any of the crimes within the jurisdiction of the tribunal, whether or not in violation of domestic law of the country where it was perpetrated. And finally, Charge 4, the conspiracy to commit war crimes, crimes against peace, or crimes against humanity. This final charge made it understood that leaders, organizers, instigators, and accomplices formulating a common plan or conspiracy to commit any of the foregoing crimes are responsible for all acts performed by any persons in execution of such a plan. Here it is important to note that the Soviet leadership was extremely reluctant to accept many aspects of the Article 6 crimes. This was because they were equally guilty with regards to many of the outlined charges and worried that in the not too distant future, they would be held to the exact same standard. They were after all signatories of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939, and this was, in no uncertain terms, a conspiracy to divide Poland and subjugate its people between the fascist and communist powers. This is not to mention the laundry list of crimes against humanity and peace committed by the Red Army while evicting the Nazis from the eastern territories. But like much of the Nuremberg trials themselves, perfection was not going to be the enemy of the good. And forcing Soviet leadership into the dock would be a nearly impossible task. The next step for trial planning was the location. It was given as fact that the trial must take place in Germany. This was so the people of the accused leaders could watch and be kept aware of the proceedings against the previous regime. The city of Nuremberg was eventually selected for a combination of logistical, pragmatic, and symbolic reasons. For Nuremberg had been the spiritual home of Nazism, wherein the most lavish and grandiose ceremonies were held. 
most famously of which was in Lenny Reifenstahl's 1935 propaganda film, Triumph of the Will. This documented a 700,000 person strong Nazi rally. And as author Hans Bluel wrote of the annual festivities in Nazi Nuremberg, quote, For a full week, the regime displayed its immense talent for rousing huge masses of humanity to organize jubilation in its own honor. Scenic aids ranged from the homely German backcloth provided by the city's medieval architecture, to the pan-Germanic megalomania of gigantic new party buildings, to the visual impact of high-precision parades and forests of all-enveloping banners, and also of experiencing the magical enchantment of a luminous dome erected in the night sky by more than a hundred searchlights." Unquote. It was also the site of the infamous Nuremberg Laws of 1935. The United States Holocaust Museum describes these as, quote, the Nazi regimes announced decrees that institutionalized many of the racial theories prevalent in Nazi ideology. These laws excluded German Jews from Reich citizenship and prohibited them from marrying or having sexual relations with persons of German or related blood. Additional ordinances to the laws economically disenfranchised Jews and deprived them of most political rights." Unquote. So on top of the symbolism of holding the trials in Nuremberg, there was also the reality that much of the German infrastructure lay in rubble. And yet the Palace of Justice stood relatively intact. A stroke of poetic justice was realized and complemented the fact that the US and British officials also had in their custody a majority of the eventual defendants. So despite the initial Soviet objection to Nuremberg, they preferred Berlin, it was eventually accepted and announced to the world. The Nuremberg trials were set to commence on November 20th, 1945. The Allies could now file charges and officially serve indictments under the power of the newly minted International Military Tribunal. The process of deciding which persons to charge and with what indictments to serve became a contentious endeavor. Although the Allied Tribunal was greatly motivated to charge an all-encompassing group of individuals so that the entire foundation of Nazi rule would be on trial, the Soviets wanted a much deeper pool of Nazis to be held to account. They had in fact sustained the highest amount of casualties, which was about 26 million deaths in total and they had hosted some of the most deadly and atrocious battle sites of the entire war. One need only look into the Battle of Stalingrad or Leningrad to understand the carnage that the USSR had endured during the latter half of the war. They wanted eye for an eye justice. But through long-winded negotiation, cooler heads prevailed, and the Allies eventually converged upon 199 defendants. 24 of which were to be tried in the premier showcasing that would become widely known as the Nuremberg Trials. And of those 24 men, 21 would be seated in the court dock as defendants on trial. There were three men who were meant to be held to account for their crimes, but Gustav Krupp, a German industrialist, was excused for advanced age and poor health. Party Secretary Martin Burman he could not be located at the time of the trial, and he was tried in absentia. And Nazi Labour Minister Robert Ley, he committed suicide in his holding cell on the eve of the trial's commencement.
As a collective, the accused included the highest living echelons of political, military, economic, and social spheres, who together made National Socialism a reality in Germany from 1933 to 1945. The Allies consciously chose a wide cross-section of Nazi leaders to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Hitler's totalitarian vision was not purely restricted to the political and military domains of statecraft. Rather, they spanned across every aspect and sphere of social concern, and the aim, from the very beginning, was total war for ultimate racial victory. The defendant seated in the courtroom dock were the following accused men. Karl Dönitz, supreme commander of the German Navy and Hitler's chosen successor to the Reich. Hans Frank, governor general of occupied Poland. Wilhelm Frack, Reichsminister of the Interior. Hans Frische, director and head of the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Walter Funk, Reichsminister of Economics and President of the Reichsbank. Hermann Goering, Reichsmarshal, President of the Reichstag, Minister of Prussia and Supreme Commander of the Air Force. Rudolf Hess, Deputy Führer of the Nazi Party and Minister without Portfolio. Alfred Jodl, Chief of Operations for High Command. Ernst Kaltenbrunner, Chief of Reich Security, Investigation, and Intelligence. Wilhelm Keitel, Chief of Armed Forces High Command. Konstantin von Neurath, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Franz von Papen, Previous Reich Chancellor and Vice-Chancellor to Hitler. Erich Radar, High Commander of the German Navy. Joachim von Ribbentrop, Reichsminister of Foreign Affairs. Alfred Rosenberg, Reichsminister for the Eastern Territories, Reichsleiter, and Nazi philosopher. Fritz Sockel, Chief of Labor Deployment. Hallemir Schott, Reichsbank President and previous Reichsminister of Economics. Balder von Schirach, Reich Leader of the Hitler Youth. Arthur Seisenquart, Chancellor of Occupied Austria and Reich Commissioner of Occupied Holland. Albert Speer, Reichsminister of Armaments. And finally, Julius Streicher, founder, publisher, and editor of Der Sturmer newspaper. The near entirety of National Socialism was on trial and every branch of the fascist nation-state would be scrutinized. Indeed, they all supported and enabled one another to produce the devastation of World War II. Introducing the complete picture of historical figures involved with the Nuremberg trials would be a monumental and lengthy undertaking if done so to the full extent. So for the sake of expediency, Smoke-filled Rooms has decided to focus on a handful of individuals associated with the trial. And of this limited list, two primary figures stand out as representing an accurate topographical view of the intent and meaning of the Nuremberg proceedings. 
The overlay of the trial can be deduced succinctly by looking at our primary hero and villain throughout the trial, American prosecutor Robert H. Jackson and Nazi Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering. Robert H. Jackson was arguably the most important actor in creating the tribunal's charter and was the member who delivered the most resonant and passionate arguments of the proceedings. Jackson was a distinguished and decorated career lawyer who started his own practice in 1918, and by 1930, he was elected to membership in the American Law Institute. Politics were also of interest to Mr. Jackson. He was first introduced to Franklin Roosevelt back when he started to practice law, and shortly thereafter, he became an active member in the Democrat Party. He became part of the New York State Democrat Committee, and when Roosevelt was later elected governor of New York, he appointed Jackson to a special commission that reviewed judicial reforms before being set into law. Going forward, Jackson's legal career was to be inextricably linked to Roosevelt's political career. And as the Great Depression worsened, Jackson agreed to leave his private practice and join the Roosevelt administration in 1934. He was firstly appointed to Assistant General Counsel of the U.S. Treasury's Bureau of Internal Revenue. This would eventually become the IRS. Two years later, in 1936, Jackson became Assistant Attorney General who headed the Tax Division in the Department of Justice. And in 1937, he became Assistant Attorney General heading the Antitrust Division. He was so successful and dedicated to his work that President Roosevelt made him Solicitor General in 1938 and regarded him as a successor candidate for the Democrat Party after his second term was finished. This led to increasing Jackson's public profile so that he could take a run at the nomination in 1941. The war would obviously disrupt these plans, but it didn't stop FDR from appointing him U.S. Attorney General in 1940 and then nominating him to the Supreme Court in 1941. He served here until 1954, but with the notable distinction of being tapped by President Truman to be the American Chief Prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials. Secondly, and somewhat perversely, in rank order importance to Justice Jackson within the Nuremberg proceedings, was the chief antagonist amongst the defendants, Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering. At the time of the Third Reich's collapse, Goering was widely considered to be the second most powerful man in Hitler's Nazi Germany, and was officially earmarked as successor to the Reich if Hitler fell. A man standing 5 foot 10 and 260 pounds at the time of his capture, Goering was a larger-than-life figure who called himself the last Renaissance man. He was a highly decorated and grandiose World War I fighter pilot ace who had 22 aerial victories and a slew of military honors and medals to his name. With only a few months remaining in World War I, Goering was made a captain of a fighter pilot squadron and on several occasions, blatantly refused to follow orders of retreat and the abandonment of aircraft under his control. And he was, right up until the end of his life, a big and boisterous personality who even at the age of 25 enraged his subordinate pilots with his arrogance and bravado. After World War I, Herman tried his hand at stunt flying and private chauffeuring for Svensk Luftraffics 
which was a short-lived Swedish airline. It was during this time, around 1922, when Goering had first met Hitler in Munich. He heard him deliver one of his fiery beer hall speeches and instantly connected with the stab-in-the-back conspiracy theory pitched by Hitler. This was a fairly popular conspiracy theory that asserted that Germany did not really lose the war through battle. Rather, they were betrayed by a Jewish and Marxist elite who broke up their monarchy at the end of the war only to intentionally surrender the empire and start a degenerate democratic republic in its wake. This theory is roundly rejected by prominent historians who note that, at the time of the armistice in November of 1918, Germany was fresh out of reserves with barely any supplies and who were slowly being overpowered by the Entente powers after the entrance of the United States. But being a military man raised by a military father, Goering would never accept the outcome of the war and found within National Socialism a form of redemption and meaning for all of his sacrifice and loyalty to the German state. He joined the Nazi party in 1922 and was quickly promoted to Gruppenführer of a paramilitary squadron. Hitler remarked later on that, quote, I liked Goering. I made him the head of my SA. He's the only one of its heads that ran it properly, for I gave him a disheveled rabble, and in a very short time, he had organized a division of 11,000 fighting men, unquote. In 1923, during the infamous Beer Hall push where the early Nazi party attempted to overthrow the Weimar government, Goering led a brigade of troops who met armed resistance by state police. Amidst the battle, he was shot near the groin and was admitted to hospital for over a month, and this led to a major part of his life from there on out, morphine addiction. To dull the pain of his gunshot wound and subsequent nerve damage, Goering would ingest increasing amounts of the drug to the point of being admitted to rehab treatment programs twice in the following years. He would also be admitted to an asylum for being a dangerous and violent drug addict who would be straitjacketed during his final incarceration. And during all of his personal troubles, including the death of his wife from tuberculosis and epilepsy in 1931, the Nazi party slowly rebuilt and grew. Hitler unveiled his new book Mein Kampf to the world in 1925, and this served to carefully explain his dictatorial vision for Germany. After rejoining party functions in 1928 and keeping his morphine addiction in the background, Göring continuously won his Reichstag seat in Bavarian elections until the dissolution of the Democratic Republic in 1933. In the federal German election of July 1932, the Nazi party captured 230 seats out of 608. This is just over 37% of the popular vote. Far from being a majority in any respect, they nonetheless held a plurality of the seats and were the largest party in the Reichstag. The remaining 378 seats were split between 13 other parties, leaving the opposition severely fractured and Goering having won his seat in every election, on top of being Hitler's closest military and political ally, was automatically appointed as president of the Reichstag. He would keep this title until Hitler's last days in the bunker, 
when he was officially expelled from the party in April of 1945. So despite the Nazi electoral gains made in the late 20s and early 30s through quasi-democratic means, for it was well understood that open displays of communism in the streets would bring direct and brutal violence at the hands of the Nazi brownshirt forces, this was still not enough power for the newly minted Chancellor Hitler. He convinced President Hindenburg to hold an election on March 5th of 1933 so that he would hopefully secure his much-desired majority in Parliament and vanquish the Communist Party legally through an enabling act. But despite his relatively good chances of winning, Goering and the Nazi hierarchy had other plans. Something had to accelerate the speed and breadth of their struggle, and this came in the form of a possible false flag attack perpetrated against the last civil vestige of German democracy. The Reichstag itself. Around 9 p.m. in Berlin on a late February night in 1933, the German Reichstag building was destroyed by an intense inferno that gutted the entire structure. Shortly after the blaze was first responded to by local firefighters, Hermann Goering conveniently arrived on the scene. He immediately began to incite gathering onlookers by loudly accusing the hard left of starting the fire. He was quoted as repeatedly yelling into the night, quote, this is a communist outrage. One of the communist culprits has been arrested." Unquote. In the days following, Nazi media throughout Germany began to uniformly and viciously repeat the mantra that the blaze was Bolshevik terrorism and the harbinger of a communist revolution. And Goering, whether in concert with a small group of Nazi hierarchy or of his own free will, he was almost certainly the arsonist conspirator responsible for this crime. He had the opportunity, several strong motives, an uncorroborated alibi, and the means to carry it out. And the Reichstag fire? It was the singular incident that led to the Nazi party wresting control of the German government. And if not for this event, it is hard to imagine a scenario in which Hitler wins power through the ballot box. And though denied by Goering himself, a sworn affidavit was later presented at the Nuremberg trials, wherein General Franz Halder, a guest at Hitler's birthday party in 1943, recalled Goering bragging about his involvement in the incident. Quote, The only one who really knows about that Reichstag building is I, for I set fire to it. Unquote. And with saying this, he laughed and slapped his thigh. The rest, as they say, is history. With Hitler now at the helm of German politics, he quickly named Goering as Minister Without Portfolio the Minister of the Interior for Prussia, and the Reich Commissioner of Aviation. The power bestowed upon him would culminate throughout the 1930s, as he was an integral part of the Night of the Long Knives, Kristallnacht, the repressive Nuremberg Laws, and the four-year rearmament plan. Goering was a central figure in the Nazi party, a leading figure in German life, and a founding architect of World War II. The Nuremberg trials officially started on November 20th, 1945. Leading up to the inaugural day, much construction and preparation was needed to accommodate these monumental proceedings. The Palace of Justice's main hall was doubled in size so that it could accommodate the security, media, counselors, defendants, translators, and judges. 
250 members of the international media from 23 countries were on hand and upon entering the courtroom were greeted with a scene of calculated solemnity. Author Andrew Walker writes that, quote, the courtroom walls were paneled in dark oak and green curtains. The commandant of the prison had filled the area with his most impressive guards. They wore gleaming white helmets and were armed with white truncheons, and the whole scene was lit by a garish fluorescent lighting which would be bright enough to aid the film cameras behind the soundproof screen." Unquote. Some attention should be paid here to the intricate workings of the translation system used for the proceedings. Being truly international in scope and practice, the language interpretation and transmission system would soon be understood as a marvel for the middle of the 20th century. With the tribunal unanimously agreeing that the defendants had the right to a fair trial, they were thus granted the ability to listen and speak in their native tongues for maximum understanding. Modern tech giant IBM developed a simultaneous translation system through a series of wires and headphone sets that would be worn by nearly all involved in the trial. As much as was possible, speeches and presentations were pre-recorded and then broadcast to the applicable participants within the courtroom. As the Holocaust Encyclopedia describes, quote, In Nuremberg, there were five channels in the translation system. The first channel contained the verbatim transmission of the speaker. The other channels were English, Russian, French, and German. Each participant in the trial had a set of headphones and could dial to whichever channel he or she preferred. There were six microphones placed in the courtroom, one for each judge, the witness stand, and the speaker's podium, unquote. And on top of this, there were three teams of live interpreters who could in real time translate the proceedings as necessary. But this forced the courtroom actors to stay below 60 words per minute so that the translators could accurately relay information to their interlocutors. And finally, a translation supervisor controlled little boxes throughout the courtroom that had little lights on them. A yellow light would let the speaker know that they were talking too fast and to slow down and a red light would indicate that the speaker would have to stop and restate his words more slowly. At 9.30 a.m. that same morning, the 20 Nazi defendants were led into the courtroom and seated in the dock directly facing the tribunal judges. At 10 a.m., the trial officially began. The first order of business was to formally indict the defendants. This was, in retrospect, a ceremonial presentation because the accused had already been served their charges well in detention. The readings of the charges went well into the following day, but gave the international press a chance to appraise the demeanor and appearance of the Nazi hierarchy. Reichsmarschall Goering, Field Marshal Keitel, and General Jodl were all donning their military regalia for the trial. These were much less impressive than usual, though, considering that they were stripped of their medals and insignia upon formal arrest. Most of the defendants wore dark suits, and their silent emotions were largely worn on their proverbial sleeves. Goering purposely projected an air of boredom and contempt. Economic Minister Walter Funk, he sobbed on and off as the charges were read. Anti-Semitic propagandist Julius Stryker, he projected strength and determination and Foreign Minister Joachim Ribbentrop was sweating profusely. Once again, the charges laid against the defendants were 
crimes against peace, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and conspiracy to commit any of the aforementioned offenses. The defendants were then formally required to enter their plea to the court. Gehring made a short-lived attempt to disavow the proceedings and proclaim his disbelief of the victor's justice being imposed upon him. Before I ask the question of the I informed the court court, that defendants were not entitled to make a statement. You must plead guilty or not guilty. He was summarily cut short by English Justin's lords, who demanded that they either say guilty or not guilty. This quieted some of the trial's dissenters, who insisted that the whole event would be a hotbed of Nazi promotion, wherein the defendants would have free reign to revise history, go on lengthy tirades, and generally disrupt the proceedings with propaganda and bluster. Over the course of the next day, all 20 defendants eventually entered their pleas of not guilty to the courtroom. Rudolf Hess. Nein. That will be entered as a plea of not guilty. Joachim von Ribbentrop. Im Sinne der Anklage für nicht schuldig. Wilhelm Keitel. Ich bekenne mich nicht schuldig. In the absence of uh, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, the trial will proceed against him, but he will have an opportunity of pleading when he is sufficiently well to be brought back into court. Alfred Rosenberg. Ich bekenne mich im Sinne der Anklage nicht für schuldig. Hans Frank. Ich bekenne mich nicht für schuldig. Wilhelm Frick. Nicht schuldig. Julius Streicher. Nicht schuldig. Walter Funk. Ich bekenne mich nicht als schuldig. Hjalmar Schacht. Ich bin in keiner Weise schuldig. Karl Dünn. Erich Reder. Ich bekenne mich nicht schuldig. Baldur Ich bekenne mich im Sinne der Anklage als nicht schuldig. Fritz Sarko. Ich bekenne mich im Sinne der Anklage vor Gott und der Welt und vor allem vor meinem Volk nicht schuldig. With this, the prosecution, led by Justice Jackson, made its opening statement. It was a speech of near lawful perfection that outlined the severity of the crimes, the basis for the IMT's case, and most importantly, the necessity of justice to prevail over evil. It is a document of poetic history that everyone listening should seek out to read and is also listed in our show notes. It flawlessly represents the idealism of law and order and the need to maintain civility in the wake of barbarism. As Justice Jackson stated, quote, The privilege of opening the first trial in history for crimes against the peace of the world imposes a grave responsibility. The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated. The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. That four great nations 
flushed with victory and stung with injury, stay the hand of vengeance. And voluntarily submit their captive enemies to the judgment of the law is one of the most significant tributes that power has ever paid to reason. In the prisoner's dock sit 20 broken men. Reproached by the humiliation of those they have led, almost as bitterly as by the desolation of those that they have attacked, their personal capacity for evil is forever past. It is hard now to perceive in these men, as captives, the power by which, as Nazi leaders, they once dominated much of the world and terrified the rest of it. Merely as individuals, their fate is of little consequence to the world. These prisoners, they represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies have returned to dust. We will show them to be living symbols of racial hatreds, of terrorism and violence, and of the arrogance and cruelty of power. They are the symbols of fierce nationalisms and of militarism, of intrigue and war-making which have embroiled Europe generation after generation, crushing its manhood, destroying its homes, and impoverishing its life. There is a dramatic disparity between the circumstances of the accusers and of the accused that might discredit our work if we should falter in even minor matters in being fair and Civilization asks whether the law is so laggard as to be utterly helpless to deal with crimes of this magnitude by criminals of this order of importance. It does not expect that you can make war impossible. It does expect that your judicial action will put the forces of international law, its precepts, its prohibitions, and most of all its sanctions, on the side of peace. This is so that men and women of goodwill in all countries of the world may have leave to live by no man's leave underneath the law. Unquote. And with that... Justice Jackson and the American delegation had fired their opening salvo against the Nazi defendants. Part 2 of this Nuremberg trial series will delve further into the gruesome prosecutorial cases made by the tribunal powers and for their quest to expose the legacy of brutality within Hitler's Germany. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contributions. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, 
and falls under the umbrella of Zinc Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.